Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author, Sam Baker. The best way I can think of to describe this week's guest is that she's a women's health vigilante. A vagina vigilante, if you will. Dr. Jen Gunter is the living embodiment of Information is Power. And she's made it her life's mission to give you the information you need to make life better for you and for your vagina. Best known for her book, The Vagina Bible, now Jen is bringing that same direct approach to the menopause with her new book, The Menopause Manifesto. If it's treated like your expiration date, you could also appreciate why people don't want to talk about it. You know, people are given zero information. Men get distinguished. Women get diminished. Jen is characteristically noble as she talks menopause, mental health, why we need to know what the fuck is going on and why women need more menopausal role models. Join me and Jen as we cross the Crimson Bridge. Welcome to the Order of the Menopause. Welcome to Shift, Jen. Would you mind telling us a little bit about where you are right now? Sure. I'm in Marin County, California, which is just north of the Golden Gate Bridge in Northern California. I'm in my bedroom because one of my sons is roaming around with the dog. We have a lab and so she'll be crashing through things. And then the other one's getting ready to go to his job at the restaurant. So there's a lot of commotion in the rest of the house. Oh, I have a cat. He's like, no, I'm just going to sit over here. I'll be really quiet. I promise. So if you see a streak of black fly over, that's what it is. Uh, Before we get into the menopause, could you tell me a little bit about your career and how you came to be such a, I don't know what's the word, advocate, fighter, vigilante for women's health? Yeah, so I'm an OBGYN. I'm originally from Canada, from Winnipeg, Canada, and I've always not been shy, perhaps that's a good way of saying it. I've always been fine about speaking up. And, you know, I did my OBGYN training in Canada, and then I moved to the States to do some more training. And yeah, I'd always been interested in the information I guess my patients were bringing into the office. You know, in residency, I would look at the magazines that were, you know, in the doctor's offices and, you know, people bring in magazines when they're in labor and then they just leave them behind after. And so I would just, you know, look at like the health sort of quote, quote, information and people magazine or in these other magazines and think, oh, so that's where my patients are getting it. That's where people get those ideas. And so that just sort of started to become more of an interest for me. Uh, And then fast forward a little bit to 2003 when I uh, was pregnant. I had a very complicated pregnancy with triplets and one of my sons died at birth and the other two uh, you know, were very premature and in the intensive care unit for a long time. And they had a lot of health problems, like a lot. It was really hard for me as a doctor. And I thought, oh my gosh, if this is this hard for me as a doctor, what is it like for everybody else? And the misinformation online about, you know, vaccines and prematurity and just feeding and all this kind of stuff, you know, this was sort of right at the time where the internet was sort of blossoming as a source of medical information. And so I somewhat naively, because I know nothing about computers or the internet in general, decided that I was going to fix the medical internet. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, I don't think I've done too bad a job. But yeah, so that's how I decided to get more active. And, you know, and I decided that, you know, I couldn't just write about pregnancy or prematurity related issues that I needed to really make that sort of all encompassing sort of for women's health care. So it just started to grow and grow and, uh, and here we are. And then Twitter happened, presumably. Yeah. In that. 
Did that really escalate things? Well, I got involved with Twitter more than 10 years ago, I think. Mm. And uh, so it was right when my very first book on prematurity came out. And somebody said this throwaway comment to me somewhere like, oh, you should get on this thing called Twitter to promote your book. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I just got on Twitter and I think it was a bit of a natural fit. You know, I'm the kind of person at a party that likes to go and talk to everybody and share lots of different stories. And and to me, Twitter is like a really big cocktail party. And that's kind of how I treat it. You know, if you're always saying the same thing, eventually people aren't going to talk to you anymore. If, you know, you're not sort of circulating and working the room, you're not a good host. And so I think, yeah, that's how sort of I look at it. And I think I was a good fit for Twitter. And certainly I was one of the first doctors who were really, you know, very active on Twitter. And I got a lot of pushback from that, you know, medical professional societies and such saying that I was like unprofessional for swearing or, you know, whatever, saying the truth. (laughs) Yeah, breaking the code by actually having a conversation with potential patients. Right. And I'm like, you know, wait a minute, you know, what's unprofessional? Lying to people, medical misinformation. That's what's unprofessional. Different styles of communication work for different people. So that's okay. But, you know, like I'm unprofessional, but Dr. Oz is like hawking supplements on his TV show. (laughs) Like, come on. It's weird, isn't it? Because it does seem to be that it's wrong for some people to talk publicly about medical issues and it's not wrong for some other people. How does that work? I mean, a lot of it's misogyny, right? So the men don't seem to get criticized for it. So there's that, right? And I think there's this societal not knowing what to do with a woman who speaks her mind and knows what she's talking about and doesn't really care what you think. That's the biggest blow to sort of a patriarchal society is that I really have no investment in your thoughts about me. So you may as well be screaming into the wind. So I think there's that. It's these sort of patriarchal things that have been, you know, with us since the beginning of, you know, most cultures that, you know, the position of power should not be held by a woman. You know, I think that it was the idea that maybe I was one of the first who was really vocal on social media, that I was doing it in a way that worked for me. And, you know, if people were listening, that's wonderful. Obviously, there's lots of different ways to speak to people. And I I think the diversity of voices that we have is really important because my message isn't going to work for everybody. I mean, no one's is, right? So you have to meet people where they are. And that's that's sort of not how medicine has been for a long time. No, it kind of removes the all-seeing, all-knowing power doesn't it, from the doctor on the other side of the desk. You know, they're the person with the power and the knowledge and you're the patient and you have to go and it be bestowed on you. And what you're doing is taking that away. Yeah, and I think a lot of physicians don't really realize the power differential because you've been in medicine your whole life, right? So you don't really know what it's like to sit across on the other side of the table and not have that information, right? So, you know, there are still times even now where even though I've been doing this communication for a long time, you know, my partner will say, well, you talk like that, like as if everybody would know that word. And I don't know what it is. And I'm like, oh, right. So many times we just don't appreciate it. I'm sure just like if a pilot was talking about flying, they wouldn't appreciate that. I have no idea what they're talking about. right? But I've heard some of those words. So I think I can sort of fill in the blanks, but I can't because I'm not a pilot. And so I think we have this problem with not teaching medical communication or teaching communication with the public to doctors. Because I do think many doctors don't want to be like that. But if they've never been taught how to sort of have those kinds of communications, then how would they know? As a doctor and a woman in her 40s at that point, how was your experience of menopause? Oh, well, for me, it it really wasn't that much of a big deal. I mean, I had symptoms, but I knew everything that was happening. And so when nothing feels like it's coming out of the blue, when nothing is throwing you off balance, because you're like, 
oh my gosh, what's broken with my body now? I mean, it was sort of like, oh, okay, I've read the guidebook. I know what's happening. Okay, check, check. Oh, I'm not having this. Okay, I'm not, that's not my journey. This path, this path is. So for me, it was pretty routine. I mean, it didn't mean that I didn't have terrible hot flushes. It didn't mean that I didn't have, you know, some other issues, but it meant that I was like really prepared for it. So one example I gave in the book was, you know, I was about seven or eight months past my last period and heading for a vacation actually to Hungary. The plane seatbelt light was literally still on. Could still see the Golden Gate Bridge, right? We were barely anywhere. Hadn't had a period in seven months. I hadn't packed any pads or tampons because I was like, yes, I'm going to actually not need to bring anything. And boom. My period starts. Rivers of blood. Yeah, (laughs) of course. But because I knew that could happen, you know, that's a possibility that you're not done till you're a year done. It was bothersome because I was bleeding on an airplane and I had to use airplane pads and tampons, but it wasn't worrying. And I think that's a big Mm -hmm. difference. When you don't know the difference between what's bothersome and what's worrying, then of course you would assume it's all worrying. And then that would, of course, affect your experience and affect how you feel. So I think that knowing what's happening to your body is really empowering. Pretty much a hundred women that I spoke to about their experience of menopause. That was the thing that came through time and time again, was they didn't know what to expect because it's all hot flushes and, you know, the sitcom character of the hot, angry, slightly fat middle-aged woman. You know, there's no discussion in particular about mental health symptoms. A lot of people's mothers don't speak to them about it, haven't spoken to them about gynecological at all. And then even their friends don't want to talk about it because the culture around the menopause is like, I'm not listening, you know, don't talk to me about it. I don't want to know. And so that kind of conspiracy of silence just makes the whole thing hideous. Yeah. I mean, there's this real culture of silence around menopause. It's so pervasive. To me, it's like menopause doesn't even rate the shame that we give the vulvan vagina. You know, it's it's amazing that there's just this absence of public discourse. But if it's treated like a pre-death, right? Um, Mm. If it's treated like your expiration date, you could also appreciate why people don't want to talk about it. You know, people are given zero information. Men get distinguished, women get diminished. And if your options on television shows or, you know, popular culture where, you know, where we, you know, get a lot of our ideas from, if, you know, your options are sort of a dotty older aunt or, you know, a vindictive matriarch or you're given so few characters to choose from as opposed to, you know, men as they age have this wealth and breadth of different characters to choose from to imagine themselves in those positions. So yeah, I mean, that was one of the things I really wanted to do with this book was to say, you know, this is what's happening with your body. There is a culture of silence that makes women feel alone. And that's why feminism is such an important part of tackling menopause. It shouldn't be feminist though, should it? To want to know how you're body works and have a bit of agency over it. I know I I gave a TED talk last year about periods and you know that was one of my lines it shouldn't be an act of feminism to know how your body works but it is. And that's that's not going to change for a while unfortunately, but the louder we get and the more we talk about it and the more we demand a seat at the table, you know that's how things change. It's interesting you say that because I feel strongly that we have to talk about it to normalize it. But I have had people say to me, "Oh no, you're reducing women by, you're reducing them to their biology. You wouldn't ask a man about that. So why do you want to know if, I don't know, Michelle Obama's had her menopause or 
Kamala Harris had her menopause. Like, well, I do want to know, actually, because they're powerful, influential women in their 50s. And that's that's empowering to other women in their 50s to know that they've sat in meetings having a hot flush or whatever, you know, we're going to call it. Yeah, I mean, you know, the assumption is, is that every adult you meet has gone through puberty, right? Yes. <laughs> that's the assumption, right? It's been that universal, every single person has gone through puberty. You know, if you make a little crack about you know, growing pains or acne during puberty or whatever, and you're in a room of 20 people, probably 10 will nod their heads, right? Like there'll be this kind of unspoken community, like everybody gets it. So you don't have to talk about it. And so that's the point where we need to get through with menopause, right? Where everybody knows about it. So everybody gets it. So then we don't have to have this sort of public declaration about it, but we're not there yet. So yeah, I mean, obviously people shouldn't have to share personal information if they don't want to, but that's why I felt it was really important for me to share you know, what was happening for me in the book. So people would say, oh, look, you know, I mean, you can talk about these things. It's not a big deal. But, you know, when it's viewed as an expiration date, when you're viewed as incompetent by your age, of course you have to talk about it to counteract it. If society wasn't judging women by it, then maybe we wouldn't have to have so many conversations about it. You just said incompetent. And I think that's a real thing, isn't it? That women's competence is really linked to their hormones in, you know, the way that language is used about us. Like you said, menopause is seen as a little death but it's also seen as oh she's got brain fog or just leave her over there she's fine you know she's probably left her phone in the fridge and it's just it's all about dismissal isn't it well i think everything about the experience of being a woman is dismissal and it's just at different points in your ovarian function cycle that different parts are weaponized against you right so when you're younger you know you're hormonal if you're upset about something you're clearly on your period right or you're premenstrual or if you have sex before marriage you know you're a slut if you are pregnant you're forgetful if you're not pregnant you're barren so the experience of being a woman is to always be on the edge of a knife, right? You're to this, to that, to this, to that. And, you know, menopause, the way we treat women in menopause is just simply, I think, an extension of that. But because society values youth and because by extension, society values young reproductive age women, right? So, you know, they, they're sort of the fertile ideal, if you will, because those are the standards. When you're not that standard, then there's just so much more to weaponize against you. There's this really weird thing, isn't it, where even if whether you aren't a mother by choice or circumstance, or if you've never judged yourself at all by that standard, or even if you are a mother and you've never judged yourself by that standard, you kind of reach a point where all of a sudden you become very aware your biological usefulness, if you like, is being taken away. And that would never have crossed my mind until I became perimenopausal. It literally is society's expiration date. That's how you're treated. And so basically we are summing up, we're commodifying women as being basically walking uteruses, boobs, and ovaries, right? If you're not in servitude to your uterus anymore, then what value are you, right? You're not a broodmare for society anymore. And it's really sad that these are beliefs that have been around for a long time, you know, that we haven't been able to get rid of them. You know, if you look at historically in the 15, 1600s earlier, and even until relatively recently, the lack of menstruation meant that, oh, well, clearly you were building up toxins in your body. And, you know, so you're doubly dangerous because not only are you not fertile, but this stuff is building up in you and you could cause rabies or you can ruin mirrors. You can wilt flowers. You're, you know, you have all these meno superpowers, you know, 
I'm like, yeah, right. So we have all these like crazy superpowers. So then why weren't we taking over society then? Think about that. You know, if you think about it, you know, you're historically married off at the age of 13, 14 and 15, often to someone 20 years older than you. I mean, how frightening and awful is that? And then I think historically it was even worse for women because younger women were typically married off to older men and women outlive men, assuming they survive childbirth or the awful ways that they might've been treated, right? You know, so then he dies and who are you at the mercy of? Maybe you can't own property. Maybe you're at the mercy of your children. So yeah, I think that the experience of having value and agency in menopause is something that, you know, absent at least in Western society for, for a very long time. It does feel like it's quite a Western thing, isn't it? The devaluing of older women in many other societies, you know, older women have a value like as a grandmother or a wise woman or a... Well, you know, I think that, and I'm certainly not an expert in that, but Mm. a lot of it seems to be that it's just value of aging in general. Like if you look at traditional um, Chinese medicine, men had problems with aging just as women did. They just didn't sort of um, have a specific term for menopause. It was sort of considered, you know, any changes that happen were just part of aging. And, you know, so I think societies that are more accepting of aging in general are probably overall less derogatory. And certainly there is some data that suggests that in countries where they don't have sort of pejorative terms like menopause, which is in my mind, pejorative. And they use more terms like, you know, the passing or the change of life, which is actually how it used to be called, that women tend to be bothered less by symptoms. And obviously that doesn't mean that just changing a name changes how you feel. But if the whole culture in which you've been brought up, if your whole lifetime of experiences leads you to believe that when you start having hot flushes, you have no value to society anymore. Mm. Well, obviously when you start having those hot flushes, they're probably going to be more bothersome. I would think just, Mm. you know, intuitively than if it's like, oh, this is just a thing that happens. You're like, oh, it's the thing that happens. I'm happening now. It's happening now. Okay. You know, attitude affects a lot of symptoms. They can make us more bothered. It doesn't mean that these things are in our head, but that our brain chemistry changes our experience and our experiences can be magnified. Or, you know, if you have an experience, if you have a hot flush and you go to a doctor and you're treated nicely, as opposed to you're treated poorly, you're also probably going to have less of a negative experience about it, right? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that came up a lot for a lot of the women I spoke to was the experience they had with doctors. So if a patient gets to you, you're an OBGYN specialist, so they know that they're going to an expert already. But for us, the first port of call is a GP. So a general practitioner, you know, clues in the name. And a lot of people, in fact, nearly everybody I spoke to had kind of almost hit a wall at that point, had to go away and go back with information from somewhere else, or they'd been told, oh, you've got to have a test. And if the test says that you're not um, in perimenopause, then we don't care whether you're having hot flushes, brain fog, whatever, the test said no. Have you got any idea why doctors are so bad at menopause? Well, let me answer that. So I personally think a lot of it is still fallout from the Women's Health Initiative and several other studies, you know, in the early 2000s. For those who don't know, the Women's Health Initiative was a large study, you know, looking at, among other things, the effects of menopausal hormone therapy on heart disease and um, breast cancer. And they had a dietary arm, they had a supplement arm, they had a hormone arm. And it was halted early because of concerns about an increased risk of breast cancer and heart disease. And obviously, there's a lot of issues discussed with that because when you 
you parse the data, it's not as true as it was presented. But the problem is that caused massive shockwaves and they ended up stopping a lot of studies. It stopped studies in Europe. People stopped everything because they're like, oh my gosh, what are we doing? Are we are we killing people? We have, we have to know because I mean, it was a huge study in it. So it had all these reverberations and it took a while for the data to be reanalyzed and reparsed. And so the new guidelines, you know, were adjusted and came out. But unfortunately, and this is no excuse, I'm just explaining, unfortunately, the way it is, it takes about 15 to 17 years for guidelines to actually become common practice, which is totally unacceptable. I mean, it's completely unacceptable. You know, there's a lot of first-line therapies that a GP can offer. Absolutely. And in the short term, menopausal hormone therapy, especially if it's transdermal, is incredibly low risk, right? So if you're talking about putting somebody on some therapy for a year until they can get to a specialist, I mean, that's as low risk as something can really be medically. And so I think, you know, in countries that offer, you know, universal healthcare, you know, like the UK, like Canada, this is an absolute lack of thought at the top and how we should approach this, right? That, you know, you're leaving sort of individual GPs who are, you know, much more adept probably at managing acute problems and chronic because they only have so many spots available. And this sort of lack of thought at the level of the government. I mean, why shouldn't the government in the UK, who's obviously invested in the cost of healthcare, have amazing educational videos, you know, have a series of, you know, Royal College of OBGYN approved videos that access to everybody in multiple languages, you know, closed caption for every single audience. So then people actually have that information and then decide, you know, we're going to have a network of practitioners. We're going to have, you know, this first tier, the second tier, this third tier, because it shouldn't take years to work your way through. You know, a lot of these therapies and things like cognitive behavioral therapy, there's no reason why the government couldn't get involved in making that available. So I think that it's a failure across the board. Um, you refer to menopausal hormone therapy. Is that right? Yes. Uh, we still call it HRT, I think, in this country, which is yeah. hormone replacement therapy, isn't it? You've got some strong views on that, haven't you? Yeah, that's a really problematic term because hormone replacement therapy implies that you're replacing something that was lost. And if you're a 55-year-old woman, you are not supposed to be making estrogen. That is not how you evolved. Now, it doesn't mean that taking estrogen is necessarily bad for you or is high risk, but there's a difference between replacing something and a medical therapy. And menopausal hormone therapy is a medical therapy. It should not be couched as a replacement like thyroid right? So it's really important to think about it in that way. Now, if you're a 39-year-old going through primary ovarian insufficiency, absolutely, it's fine to call that hormone replacement therapy because your ovaries at 39 really should be making estrogen. So that's okay. But really kind of once you're in your 40s, mid-40s at least, it should really be called menopausal hormone therapy. And that's the terminology here in the US because it is an intervention. This isn't just replacing something that was lost because we are all meant to not have estrogen at 40, at 55. Now that doesn't mean it's, like I said, it's bad to take hormones at all. Um, but I think it's really important that we use really factual language. And we know that the words that we use change how people think about things and we have to hold ourselves accountable. And I asked, do you use um, MHT? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. Um, I'm on transdermal estrogen and an oral progesterone. And it's transdermal a patch. 
Yeah, patch. Yeah, exactly. Because transdermal, so the patch um, or the vaginal ring or the, the the gels and lotions that are FDA approved and whatever the equivalent is in the UK are the safest way to take it. Um, and that's because it doesn't affect your risk of clotting. If you take hormone uh, menopausal hormone therapy by mouth, um, there is an increased risk of clots. And that um, it's small, but it's definite. And so you want to take the lowest risk if you can, and um, especially long term. And so, yeah, I take it primarily because I have a very high family history of osteoporosis. Uh, and also, you know, I was having really bothersome hot flushes, like really bothersome. My mom had had really bad hot flushes, although she had a lot of mental health issues and a lot of other problems and was a heavy smoker and went through menopause very early. And so I had always thought that like a lot of it was probably related to her really heavy smoking, but I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. Um, and, and my hot flushes actually were pretty significant. I mean, I was in the operating room and I do these surgeries with x-rays. And so you have to wear a lead apron that covers you basically from your neck down to your knees that wraps all the way around your body. And then you have your surgical oh, gown God. on top of that. And the OR is quite warm. So patients don't cool off. I mean, it's like wearing armor. I would get out of surgery and I would literally, it, I would be embarrassed to take my lead apron off because I was literally soaked. My clothes were stuck to me as if I was in like a wet bikini contest for surgical scrubs. It was, it was unreal. And so, yeah, that's why I decided to do it. If I didn't have a family history of osteoporosis and I didn't have hot flushes, then, you know, I probably would have just used, you know, vaginal therapy because I was also starting to get a little bit of vaginal dryness. And for about 50% of people, um, menopausal hormone therapy will help with vaginal dryness. And I'm lucky that I'm in the percentage that it does. The negative language around, you know, vaginal atrophy. Is it atrophy or atrophy? Either way, it's a really, really horrible word. In my book, so many women said to me, oh, I loved your book, but I didn't read that chapter because I just don't want to know about it. I'm just going to try and be in this bubble and it won't happen. I mean, I don't know. How do we get away from the shame around that? It's Could language fix that or is it something more? Uh, well, I do think language can go a long way. I mean, certainly, you know, the terminology now has changed and we call it genitourinary syndrome of menopause, which isn't very catchy, catchy but, <laughs> but you know what? It's a lot better. And, you know, we changed premature menopause to primary ovarian insufficiency. So it is possible to change language. And I think it's important because, you know, it's pejorative. I mean, I think the shame starts again again, with just vaginal shame. I mean, like the hymen is named after the god of marriage. Like, No, I did not yeah, know that. Yeah. And pedendum, which is sort of the Latin term for describing, you know, your perineum, the outside of your vulva. The root of that pedere is shame to shame. So, you know, if you're literally describing body parts as in like, keep yourself until you're married and it's shameful, it's no doubt that one, you know, women spend their lifetime shamed by it during their reproductive years. But then when you're not, you don't even have that currency, it's too much. And people, you know, can't say the words vagina and vulva. I mean, that's the whole reason when I wrote the vagina Bible, I wanted it in the title. I didn't want any euphemisms. And, you know, people need to learn to use the terms when they're young. You know, it's not down there. It's your vulva. You're not washing your vagina. If you're washing yourself, you're washing your vulva. So it's important to speak accurately. There's a woman who's written a book, I don't know whether you've seen it, called My Menopausal Vagina. Her name's Jane Lewis, and she had 
the most excruciating experience of vaginal atrophy that I think you can possibly conceive of. It's like a horror film. One of the things that she describes, and I had this experience too, and several other women I spoke to, is that she was basically told it was lack of use. I mean, I can't conceive of any situation where a man would go to a doctor with a swollen, sore, cracked penis and be told, you know what you need to do? Just need to use it a bit more. Right. Well, and then it'll be fine. The penis is the cure for everything, right? It's a magic wand. Uh, actually, I. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a miracle. It's a penis. Oh my God. Um, it's really interesting. So I actually tackled that myth in the vagina Bible and I uh, mentioned it as well in the Manipause Manifesto. So it's based on what is today a terrible study that didn't even show that, but it was interpreted in that way. So obviously the study neglected to sort of think that, oh, wow, people who had more vaginal pain and problems, that might actually be the reason they're not having sex, right? You know, you can't actually say cause and effect there. And we even see it today. There was a study published recently that tried to link the age of menopause with frequency of heterosexual sex. Yeah, it just came out like two years ago. And it's ludicrous because, you know, first of all, this idea that proximity to a penis is somehow going to drag your hormones out. I mean, first of all, if that were the case, we'd know it. It would, it would clearly be obvious because people who had more sex would be more fertile, not just because they were exposed to sperm more often, right? Like you'd see that. Obviously, marriage raises people's socioeconomic status. Socioeconomic status is clearly linked with the age of menopause, right? Having a supportive partner, because you know what? If you're sexually active, you're probably in general more likely to have a supportive partner because if you hate your partner in your 50s, you're probably having less sex with them, right? So all of these things that couldn't be controlled for. And then you have to add the concept, how would evolution benefit from you having an additional pregnancy when you were 48 or 49? It wouldn't. It's absolutely ridiculous. But this idea that the penis is so mighty is so everywhere. So yeah, it's based on absolute horrific data and any physician with any common sense should be able to figure it out. And I still you know, combat that myth today. And I sadly see women still today who aren't getting help for their genitourinary syndrome and menopause. But it's it shouldn't be. I mean, it's something that's essentially 100% treatable, 100% preventable. As soon as you have symptoms, there's a whole variety of options, whether you want to use over-the-counter moisturizers, whether you want to use hormones, like there's options. Yeah. And I should say at this point for anybody listening who's going, yes, but what do I do about mine? There really is a brilliant chapter in the book about this. I wouldn't say that if there wasn't. It really is very useful. And the other chapter that I personally found very useful was the menstrual mayhem chapter. I was absolutely plagued. I mean, I'm over the other side now, but I was absolutely plagued with heavy bleeding and polyps and fibroids and adenomyosis and had several surgical procedures. But if I'd ever seen it written down like that, just straight in black and white, it would have been life-changing. And there was there are so many books on menopause. A lot of them don't say anything. They don't tell you anything. They don't give you any information. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear that all the time, you know, like I'm a subspecialist. So by the time people come to see me, they've not only had problems, but they've had problems that their general practitioner couldn't fix, that their OBGYN couldn't help. And so I have the ability to kind of, in many ways, look backwards and see, okay, where did the problem start? And I don't necessarily mean the medical problem. Where did the communication problem start? 
What information, if provided earlier, could have changed the trajectory of where we are today? So I approach each chapter in the book the way I talk to my patients in the office. I always backtrack and give them the background information because people really want that. Many times when people have the information about how their body works, they say, oh, okay, well, you know what? I don't know if I really want the treatment now. You know, people want treatment because sometimes because they're worried. It's not always because their symptoms, you know, their blood count is lowering and they're anemic. You know, sometimes it's the bother factor, which, you know, we shouldn't downplay. It's bothersome to plead when you're not expecting it. But a lot of times if people just know what's happening, you know, then they decide not to. And that's a position of power, right? Because you're still making a decision about your body. My whole sort of medical online education life has sort of surrounded by the thesis that most of medicine isn't very hard. Most of it's not complicated at all. There's a lot of it. And I believe that almost all of it can be presented in a way that the general public can understand. And if they just understood it, it would just be easier for everybody. Well, it seems to me the kind of burgeoning market in sticking the word meno in front of a product and tripling the price. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that the laws are a bit different in the States with what you can sell, what supplements you can sell and versus here. But even so, you go into any chemist or health food shop and the meno XXX is stacked high. I mean, you're pretty good at debunking snake oil. How do you feel about that? Well, it's the pink tax plus, right? So a pink razor is more expensive than a blue razor, right? And so it's even worse than that. But also, you know what? We all think more expensive products work better. That's a total, total marketing thing. I mean, it's even been shown in medical studies. There was an elegant study where they took people with Parkinson's disease, right? So they have like real motor abnormalities that can be measured. And they gave them an expensive placebo. They gave them a cheap placebo and they gave them the real drug. And then they gave them the real drug that was totally to be expensive. And of course, you know what? The expensive worked better. I mean, that probably isn't going to hold out long-term, right? But the power of the mind is really real. There's a real mind-body connection. And if you believe that you're getting more value from an expensive product, it's probably going to make you feel better to use it. And marketers know that. And who's more desperate to feel better? Well, women in menopause because they've been ignored. And, you know, who also is more likely to have perhaps a little bit of money? Maybe someone in menopause. It's just marketing genius and it's really disgusting. I mean, that's why I call a lot of people out for it. And then of course, the supplement industry here is awful. There's essentially no supplement that's going to help your experience of menopause. I mean, I'm not talking about like calcium supplements if you have a calcium deficient diet or vitamin D. You know, I'm talking about special herbal compounds and things like that. It's very predatory. I kind of went through trying all those things before I went in search of MHG. And it was the point when I found myself seriously considering spending 50 pounds, so the best part of $100, on a magnet to stick in my pants that I thought, you need to get some perspective here. <laughs> that is full on madness. Yeah, I've seen that magnet ad. I wrote about it actually <laughs> a couple of years ago. And yeah, it's so predatory. And they use science-ish language. So again, if mm. you don't have the medical background, it sounds like it could maybe work. Boy, they sure use those terms. It probably says doctor approved on it, which is a meaningless term, completely meaningless. And uh, they might say clinically validated, also meaningless term. Mm. I suspect that maybe you have slightly better regulation about the terms that can be used in the UK versus here. Yeah, the things you're not allowed to yeah. advertise. But yeah. you know, there's also code words and things, you know, and they can't control what people say on social media about them, right? So- 
So you don't know who's paid, which influencer, that type of thing. So it, it is very predatory. And again, it's people taking advantage of the gaps in medicine. I hear all the time about people who buy supplements or you know, magnets or whatever the latest thing is. And people are spending hundreds of dollars a month. And that's really sad. And they're probably all going to feel better a little bit for a little while because of the placebo effect. All these people are claiming that medicine is awful. And there definitely are gaps in medicine. But what they're doing is they're exploiting those gaps as opposed to saying, oh my gosh, how can we help fill it? You know, how can we, instead of selling a scammy magnet, why don't we design a series of amazing videos on menopause and sell those? But that would take time and effort and money. And you can just slap a label on a magnet and sell it. What have been the benefits to you personally of menopause? Not having a period is awesome. <laughs> That's great, isn't it? I absolutely love it. I love because I had super heavy periods, even on the pill. I probably have some kind of undiagnosed bleeding disorder, but I've made it this far and I made it through two major surgeries without dying. So I'm I'm okay with it, but super heavy periods. So if I wanted to travel somewhere, I'd say like a 30 pack of tampons or, you know, 15 maxi pads and 30 tampons. And basically I'd have like a menstrual bag and then I'd have to take, you know, the menstrual underwear along and, you know, and I'd worry if I was staying at someone's house, what if I leave? on their sheets, you know, so. You have to take a towel yeah. to put under you, between you and the sheets, and it would still go through sometimes. So so that's awesome. Like I said, I had therapy for it and I still had a heavy period. So yeah, so that's fantastic. Not having to worry about getting pregnant, that's awesome, you know, and not having to take any birth control for it. So for people who partner, you know, with men, it's amazing to be like, we can have sex anytime and not have to worry about it. So those are really nice. And, you know, I think that for me, when I wrote this book and really learning about how menopausal women drove evolution, how they contributed to society, how they were incredibly vital and hardworking post reproduction, you know, made me really think, God damn it, I am as productive now as I was earlier. And, you know, now I even care less what people think. And I didn't really care much before. Um, <laughs> so it's pretty liberating, actually. I met the love of my life when I was menopausal. I, mean, I don't think that had anything to do with it. But, you know, this idea that your life is over when your periods stop. You know, I got my first gig writing for the New York Times when I was menopausal. I wrote my first New York Times bestseller when I was menopausal. So, you know, your life isn't over. What a patriarchal society has to say about your worth is meaningless. It's absolutely meaningless. I feel like that's the message that we really need to get to younger women as well, because the more younger women can see older women doing incredible things in their like late 40s, 50s and way beyond that, the less afraid they're going to be of hitting that moment when, you know, right. we've still got half our lives to live. Exactly. Effectively, or nearly. It's not an end. You're crossing the Crimson Bridge. <laughs> I've never heard that before. Is that yours? Is that no. trademark, Jen Gunter? I wish someone left it on a comment on a post I'd written, and I wish I could remember who said it. And I actually think we should have menno parties. I really do. I mean, I know yeah. we talked about not putting menno in front of things, but I think when it's celebration, I think that's fine. And I think like, wouldn't that be awesome? You know, just like we celebrate puberty, you know, in different cultures, you get confirmed or you, you know, you go through your bar or bat mitzvah, you, you have a quinceanera, there's all kinds of so many different 
cultures and societies have sort of celebration of child to adult. We should have a celebration. And you know, is that something that, that men don't get to have? Oh my God, you know? they won't let that happen. Right. We should get a party. Like we should invite everybody over and have a dress and, you know, be like, or whatever you want to wear. And it's like, yeah, I'm like one year past my last period. It's time for my meno party. It's just like, yeah, it's, we should make it something to celebrate, something to look forward to. Yeah. I mean, I think it would be nice to be eventually at a phase where it means very little. Like it's just something that happens to your body in the same way that, you know, people's hair goes gray or that you grow taller with age, but we're not there yet. Based on our society, I don't really see that happening for a while. I think we absolutely should be. I think that we should be welcome to the order of menopause. Before I go to the few questions that I always ask at the end, I just want to ask you, um, complete this sentence. If men had menopause. Oh, <laughs> It would be a, a time of increased value, for sure. Brilliant. Thank you. What's your emotional age? Oh, I am uh, always and forever uh, 20. In my head, I'm 20. I've always been 20. Why 20? Oh, it's a great year. It was my first year of medical school. I learned so much. I met so many new friends, went out and partied a lot. I studied a lot. I squeezed everything out of life. Everything was just squeezed dry. You know, the knowledge, the fun, the camaraderie, you know. So yeah, I'm I'm just like 20 in my head always. Would you want to go back to 20? Um, well, yes and no. You know, yes, because wouldn't it be cool to redo some of that with some of the knowledge that you have? But, you know, if I went back to 20, then I wouldn't have my kids. And I wouldn't have the man who I love so much. I, I wouldn't have all the amazing friends that I've met since then. So you can't really go back. I'm sure there were bad times too, but you, you know, you romanticize the good. So going back means giving up what you have. And I don't want to give up what I have. Instead of going back to my 20s, I'm trying to bring the essence of my 20s to my now. That sounds good. Could you recommend a book that's been important to you or that you keep going back to or just that you really enjoyed? Oh, well, I mean, my favorite book of all time, which I read over and over again, because I love it so much, which has nothing to do with menopause, um, is Watership Down. Really? Oh my gosh, that's my favorite book. I love that book so much. I, um, I love it. It has so many important lessons for today about fascist regimes and climate change. And I mean, it's a bit light on the female characters in the book. So there's that, <laughs> um, but you know, it's a lovely tale. Uh, what advice would you give younger women? Don't listen to men. <laughs> Brilliant. Full stop. No men. Just don't listen to men. Yeah. I'm just nodding a lot here. Who is your old bird role model? I think uh, Angela Merkel is pretty cool. I have to say, like, she's been running Germany for a while. She's a pretty smart cookie. Every now and then, you know, she tries to be like so, so proper, but then she'll like give some kind of like eye roll or something. And I mean, and, yes. you know, and I think it's just, she's like a chemical engineer or something. You know, she's this incredibly, you know, sort of intelligent, brilliant, talented woman. And uh, I think she's pretty amazing. Like if, if I had a dinner party, I'd like to talk to her and also Hillary Clinton. Great. Uh, what's your superpower? Oh, um, my superpower is I don't care what anyone thinks about me. That really is a superpower. And have you truly always been like that? Yeah, I think I have been. I alluded to earlier, my mother had a lot of mental health problems, like a lot. And, you know, she was pretty cruel. And so I think the only survival tactic was really to just not believe anything 
that she said. And so I think I developed a really strong sense of self at an early age. I think this is one of the reasons I'm really obsessed with things that are factual, you know, because my mother would try to change history and say like I'd eaten something I hadn't eaten three days ago. or And then if I didn't agree with her, then, you know, I'd get hit. So I would have to sort of make a call. Do I agree with her to shut her up or do I, do I stick my ground and take the punch? And I, most of the time I just stood my ground because, you know, it was really important for me to like, you're not going to get inside my head and change what I thought. So I think it comes from that. That's a really big decision to have to make at quite a young age, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's just the best that I can come up with. Yeah. I mean, to me, everything that she was doing was so like, wow, this can't be normal. This can't be normal to be like this. I've seen other families. This isn't how it works. And so, you know, your decision is to sort of not be part of that or to be part of it. Those are really your only choices. And, you know, just decided I had to look after myself, my dad and my brother got swept up in it. And, you know, whatever she said, they, you know, they got into it and there was no escape from it. Like it just went on and on and on. It wasn't like you could say one thing and that would placate her. It would just lead to the next thing and the next thing. So I had sort of seen that and I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to do that. So there's just this other option. So yeah, I think that's where it comes from. And I think that's an important thing to talk about. You know, a lot of people don't talk about their horrible childhoods and things that happen. And then when it happens to somebody else, they think they're the only one. And I wish when I was growing up that I had really known that I wasn't, that there are sadly a lot of people who had mothers kind of like mine. And I think that would have been really useful for me to know that. It kind of comes right back to what you're saying right at the beginning, really. It's like if we talk about it, whatever it is, it gives us more power. Yeah. You know, shame, secrecy, those are not things that are helpful. They help the people in power. So in my household, that would have been my mother. You know, for a patriarchal society, that's the patriarchy, right? So, you know, shame and secrecy help whoever holds the power. They, they don't help the other person. So yeah, those are lessons, you know, facts are really important and the ability to know what's happening, I think, and being able to judge your experiences in relationship to the world around you is also really important. Thank you. Um, how many fucks do you give? <laughs> I have no fucks left to give. Have you seen that meme that is like a medieval person? There's a field behind them that's empty and it's done in embroidery. And they're like, behold, this is the field where I have sown mine fucks. See that it is barren. No. <laughs> I haven't, but I'm going to go and look it it's up. It's really funny. In a minute. I keep meaning to like pay someone on Etsy to make that into like an embroidery thing that I can put on the wall. I just love it. This is the field where I sewed my fucks. It's empty. <laughs> you know, so many people say they don't have any fucks left to give. And then they start backtracking and going, oh yeah, but maybe that one fuck that I left over there on the shelf. And, and maybe that one over there, but I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of looking back. I'm sort of more a fan of, okay, well, what can I change going forward? I think that's important. Thank you. That was fantastic. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. This is so much fun. This is fun. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review, and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to know more about my own experience of shifting, my book, The Shift, How I Lost and Found Myself After 40, and You Can Too, is out now in paperback. See you next time.